Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, good evening once again. Let's uh, let's take a look in our scriptures tonight at uh, Romans chapter 8, or excuse me, Romans chapter 5. I wish we were in Romans 8. They're all good. Romans 5, Romans 5. We'll look at, uh, yeah, again, again, same message. You guys didn't get it the first time. I got to. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not speaking the, on the same text. We'll we'll go a little further. This is kind of by by the way an accidental look at the cross through Romans. I mean, when we're talking about the cross, you're probably going to spend a lot of time in Romans, and so um, we've been talking about dimensions of the cross. I'm going to try something different. I didn't get a slideshow put together, but I thought I might write a few words up here if this works good. And if it doesn't, we're going to abort. So. Um, what is the cross about? What is the cross about? If you ask that question to Pilate, he would have said that the cross is a political statement. He would have said that uh, the that uh, Rome is all powerful, and anyone who challenges that will pay for it in a shameful and a painful way. Um, as an example to others, uh, it says to everyone, "Don't cross us, because we're Rome and we have the power." If you asked uh, what the cross is about to Caiaphas, he would have said that the cross is a religious statement. It's something that speaks to those who are um, blasphemous and those who act out religiously. He would have said the one who dies in this way brought God's displeasure on themselves, and he would have been able to quote Scripture to justify that. Uh, Anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. Uh, anyone dying this way doesn't know God, doesn't live for God, and they're getting just what they deserve. That's what Caiaphas would have thought. So if we look at the cross, and we just observe as an outsider. I don't know what other people thought. We do know what some people who observe the cross said. They said, physician, heal yourself. If you're really the Son of God, bring yourself down. And so they use the cross as a place of mockery. But no one... Um, would have thought, except that it was revealed to us by God, that the cross means love. Of course, the cross is a political statement. It is. It says this is the king of the the universe, and by it he conquered all kingdoms. And the cross is a religious statement. It says something about us religiously, but, but it's not the political statement that Pilate thought it was, and it's not the religious statement that Caiaphas thought it was. It's something else altogether. A cross is a religious statement, but not what Caiaphas thought. It it makes uh, it takes a lot of explaining, really, to get from those two assumptions to the meaning of what we're talking about tonight. And it's found in Romans five eight. We'll actually look at verses six through eleven, uh, but in detail, we'll deal with six through eight. All right. So this comes after Paul has laid out the gospel a little bit. We talked uh, last time in chapter. Three, I think on Sunday morning we were in chapter 5, and uh, now we're going to go on to some of the next verses and talk about the, the cross as God's love. Okay, verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so uh, the cross is God's love demonstrated to us. And I want to talk about this tonight. First of all, let's, let's see how this works here. The cross is personal love. It's God's personal love. And you can see that in uh, these first few verses here. Notice uh, uh, God's love is a personal kind of love. As I looked up the word love, anybody, by the way, know uh, there's a lot of words for love, right? In Greek, there's four words for love. What's the one that usually is used for God's love? Agape, we, we, we know that. Uh, would you, you might be interested to know that it, agape is sometimes used in other ways and not of God's love. So if we say this is exclusively God's love, we'd be wrong about that. Okay, so, but it does signify a special kind of love that's, that's often not used in other contexts. Sometimes it's used as a synonym of uh, phileo. What does phileo mean? Anybody know? brotherly love. Sometimes those are synonyms of one another, and they're exact synonyms. They're not like uh, overlapping synonyms. Sometimes they're exact. And I just wanted to make that point because as we we talk about this, we are usually referring uh, to agape here. And as I looked this up in the dictionary, the first thing it says about it is very interesting. Uh, It says in in, uh, my dictionary, my Greek dictionary, it says uh, that this term has left little trace in polytheistic Greek literature. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. Uh, Greek dictionaries, the way that they get at the definitions of those words is they go back to uh, all of the ancient manuscripts and they look at how that word is used in context. And so then they say this is the way that it's used at this particular time in history, and this is the way that it's used in this particular literature, and they, f- they figure out definitions based on that. What this is saying is that when the Greek scholars are looking through all the different literature, they don't find agape in polytheistic religious literature. They don't find love in these religions that worship many gods. Don't you find that kind of profound? I, I do. Uh, the Greek dictionaries understand those words that way. And so what that means is Greek religion, there's very little use for this word, love, love of God for humanity. In fact, it's rare not only to talk about the love of God for humanity, but it's also rare in Greek literature to talk about humanity's love for God or the gods. You just don't find that. And uh, when you when you hear about this, religion was not viewed that way in paganism. You know, we... We view this, and probably the majority of the world, even the the non-Christian people around us, think of God in terms of a, if they do think of him, in terms of a relational God that we can love, okay? You might run into somebody on the street, and 
and of and probably the chances are they think or they know the scripture that talks about the love of God. They probably know John 3:16, God so loved the world, right? And so that to me is a triumph for the gospel. It tells us that even if people aren't getting it here, to some extent they're getting it here. They kind of know that. And and the reason that's the case and the reason that we don't live in a world in which we have to uh, we have to wonder if the gods are against us is because the gospel has been preached in the Western world for 2000 years. And most people, if they're going to think about God, they're going to think about some version of the Christian God, whether it's distorted or not. And I don't want to take a lot of time to justify that. I, I think it's so, and I think it's pretty self-evident. Uh, religion in paganism was not viewed that way. It was much more like a business transaction than a relationship to God the Father. So if you can imagine somebody going to their shrine or their temple and they're bringing their sacrifice, what are they doing there? Are they there because they think God is deserving because of his excellency or the gods are deserving because of their excellency of worship? Or are they trying in some way to get a God to show favor to them so that they can just get through life? That's exactly what it is. It's a business transaction that probably looked a little bit like this, that they would go and uh, they want to not get struck down or they want to appease their God's anger. And so they bring a sacrifice. Sometimes it's an animal. In some cases, it was a human sacrifice. And they would use that to purchase favor from their God's. I think that's uh, disturbing, don't you? But that's the way most of the world thought about these things. And I don't think that we really appreciate how the gospel brings us freedom from that kind of fear. Uh, I know this, I've said this before, but let me uh, bring it back. And it's not Christmas at all. We're getting further and further away from Christmas. But remember uh, in that, have yourself, a very, uh, have yourself a merry little Christmas And then it says, through the years, we'll all be together if the fates allow. And you don't maybe catch that. It just kind of passes by. But but in the Greek mind, they thought of the gods are out there doing certain things, but there's also the fates out there. And the fates, uh, at their whim, could catch you off guard and destroy your life. They could... could they could cut the band of life and you would be gone. And so there was this dread fear about just something could overtake you. Think about the freedom that there is in serving a God who is the God of all. And not only a God who is the God of all, but a God who loves us. And we don't have to, by our sacrifices, purchase his favor towards us. That's been accomplished in Christ. So this is, uh, this is a big deal. I know it may not seem like uh, maybe we've, we've already accepted this and it's, it's old hat to us and we understand all this and it's rather elementary, but I think if we go back and we really think about it, we'll realize how profound this really is, how different it is that God, he took the initiative to restore a broken relationship by himself coming to be the sacrifice and offering to us freely favorable standing with him. Um, while it's foreign to pagan religion, it's not strange to Israel. Do you know that? We talk about this kind of love it's not strange to Israel because they knew of the covenant love of Yahweh. So one word that's often used, and it's got a lot of different uh, ways that it's translated, but one word that's used is the hesed of the Lord, the hesed, hesed. Uh, and one of the best ways to understand that is covenant 
love or covenant faithfulness from God. In one way or another, because he's, he has covenant with us, he shows love, and that comes in terms of mercy, and that comes in terms of kindness. Kindness is not dispositional. Kindness is an action. It's love in action. Kindness is grace in action. It's not just that person's kind and it's a characteristic of them. A kind person is a person who expresses kindness as an act. And that's what God is. And so all that is related to his hesed or his agape, his covenant kind of love. Verse 8 shows us that uh, God demonstrates, look at that verse again with me, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The part I want to emphasize here is, is this part. It's his own, his own love. Okay? It's not uh, God demonstrates a love for us, but this is his own. This is personal love. He demonstrates it towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So thinking about this, um, this is God's love. The cross is God's love. It's his personal love. There's a brand of teaching out there, and I've heard it said by a few people, uh, but it's this, that anyone who was sinless could have died for our sins. And that's wrong. It couldn't have been anyone sinless. Because sinless is not the only stipulation for dying for our sins. The reason that Christ died for our sins is it was an expression of God's love. I'd like to just think through a few things here. Uh, First, God had to come in Christ and die for our sins because he promised that it would be that way. In the Old Testament, he promised that. When he talks about it in Isaiah 53, uh, he mentions that uh, this this is the son of divine favor. Uh, and then Zechariah 12.10. Have you ever read that verse? They will look on me. God is, the, God is the me in that. They'll look on me whom they've pierced, and they'll mourn as for an only son. That's an Old Testament prophecy. Who's the me? God. Who's the one that was pierced? Jesus, God in flesh. They'll look on me whom they've pierced, and they'll mourn. It couldn't have been just anyone. It had to be God. It had to be God. And uh, it's the Son of God in Christ, right? Christ was the only one uh, who lived right enough. But, of course, some will say it could have been anybody who lived right enough. But uh, no one else lived that way. So the argument is moot anyway. And God is the only one who could have accomplished it for his glory's sake. God made it so that as he showed his love in this act... Whoever performs this act of redemption, this act of selfless sacrifice, this act of love, is going to be one who's going to be worshipped. Do you understand that? That if if it were somebody other than God, and, and I know this is a ridiculous argument because it wasn't that way, but I'm just trying to make a point that, that this had to be Jesus. It had to be the Son of God. Because if it wasn't whoever else died for our sins, we would have worshipped them. We would have adored them. And our love would have gone towards them. It had to be God doing it. It had to be God giving himself in selfless sacrifice. And there are many other reasons beyond this. But God did sacrifice himself by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins. Father, sending the son to die in place of all humanity. 
C.S. Lewis talks about this uh, love. I'm going to mention something else about this in just a moment. But he says, God who needs nothing loves into existence creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe already seeing the buzzing cloud of flies above the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it's time after time, as it time after time uh, reaches for breath's sake. This is uh, God's love extended to us. His love is a personal love. Second thing I want to mention here is it's a demonstrated love. It's a demonstrated love, okay? Um, the, uh, and look with me at verse 8 here. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Demonstrates. The um, dictionary that I have, I don't know if you have an actual Bible here tonight, if you're on a, um, a phone or a tablet or whatever. But if you can take notes in your Bible, and if you don't mind doing that, it'd be great to write part of this definition in there next to that. You're not writing, you're not adding to the Bible. Um, I want to encourage you, put a note for definition for what demonstrate means. It means, uh, if you want to put these letters next to it, this is the source, B-D-A-G, Bauer, Danker, Arnott, and Gingrich. It's the standard uh, dictionary for New Testament Greek. And it means to provide evidence through action. Provide evidence through action. So when it says demonstrate here, God demonstrates his love. He's providing evidence for his love through action. And the actual fuller definition is to provide evidence of a personal characteristic or claim through action. Loanida's definition is to cause someone or something to be known by action. It's all kind of the same thing. Uh, the Bible sense lexicon says to demonstrate to provide evidence for, to stand as proof of, to show by one's behavior, attitude, or external attributes. So it's a show. It's a demonstration. It's proving of a particular characteristic. Okay, God has love. How do we know God has love? Because we feel it or because something's happened that proves it? According to the Word of God, there's proof of this. The King James has God commendeth. Um, maybe we don't use that word so much anymore. ESV says he shows, God God shows his love for us. Weymouth's translation, he gives proof. Uh, New Revised Standard Version proves. Okay, uh, let's talk about John 3.16 for a moment. I've said some things on this. I like to dwell a little bit more there. God so loved the world. Okay, God so loved the world. When you use so... Uh, we tend to pop in there. God's loved the world so much that he gave his only son. But um, Bill Mounts, who's a New Testament scholar, says the word, the word so cannot mean that in that context. It cannot mean love the world so much. Now, the so much is implied by the fact that he gave his only son, his one and only son. So it's true, God loved the world in extreme ways. But the point of this verse, and you can see this in comparison, what's uh, John 3.17 say? Anybody know? God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
So the point of that verse is similar to the point of the previous verse, John 3.16, which is to tell purpose, state's purpose. So the first, John 3.16 is the positive, logically speaking, and John 3.17 is the negative, logically speaking. This is what he did. This is what he did not do. Okay, In sending his son, he did this. Uh, he sent his son that the world might be saved. And God loved the world uh, in this particular way. So the, the New English translation says it this way. And I'll tell you why I'm laboring this point in just a moment. But it, New, New English translation says, For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you have the NLT, it says it this way, For this is how... God loved the world. He gave his uh, one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, I'm laboring the point for a reason. You probably um, have heard this before, and maybe it's even getting a little bit old. But um, Because the trend of the church, and I know this is happening in a lot of places, and I don't know if it's happening in this church, but I know it's happening in a lot of places. I know from enough conversations that there's a tendency, even here, that uh, the trend is to move away from fact to feeling. You understand what I mean by that? We want to move away from fact to how we feel about things. And what that means is that God's love is often determined based on how we feel rather than what he's done. And so I think it's really important that we understand uh, that we have an anchor outside of ourselves for this. It's true that, um, you know, as we look at this verse, it's true that God loved the world so much in this way. But um, God loving the world, uh, and as a pastor for two and a half decades now, I've talked to a lot of Christians who are in their own heads way too much. Like, we have a great Sunday, and you... You can wake up on Monday morning and feel like you've fallen out of the grace of God. Like if we went to, took kids to youth camp, it was almost a guarantee that however great of experience they had at youth camp, in direct proportion to that is how miserable the next week was going to go for them. It was a weird phenomenon. I don't know why it's that way. But it was like this, and God doesn't love me anymore and all of this. Well, that's not true. You're basing it in your feelings and not in the fact. And that's why these verses are so important, is that we need to anchor our faith in something outside of ourselves. And so when it says God loved the world in this way, it's giving us a statement of his love as demonstrated in the cross. So that we're not having uh, mully grub Mondays where we wake up and we're out of favor with God. We don't have to do that anymore. It's not based on that. It's based on God loves you and he's demonstrated it in fact. And you can rest upon that whether you feel it or not. So the goal of Bible study, you know, uh, as we're talking about this, the goal of Bible study is not only to interpret the Bible. It's so that we can interpret our world through the Bible. And this is the kind of thing that takes a little getting used to, but once you do it, you forget you're doing it. So you start seeing, okay, I don't feel like God loves me today, but it might just be that I haven't had enough sleep, and maybe I'm a little disappointed in myself for one reason or another. Uh, but what does the Bible say? And you start developing the habit of looking at the world and our experience through the Bible, and we get stronger. 
And pretty soon, at first, it's a little awkward. It's like when you first start wearing glasses. They might be annoying to you. But after a while, <laughs> you get to be like my mom. She walked into a room one time and said, has anybody seen my glasses? Well, they're on your face. She didn't even realize she was wearing them. And I think that's uh, the way that it ought to be in terms of looking at the world through the Bible. At first, it's kind of awkward. We're, we feel like we're forcing Scripture upon our experience. But after a while, it can become so natural that that's the natural way we look at the world. And I want it to be that way when it comes to the love of God, that we're looking at what is the love of God, not based on our feelings, but we're looking through the Scripture. And the Scripture says, God loves me. He's demonstrated. He's proved it in the cross. And then we're not, we're not starting at level one every day. You know what I mean? Level one is God loves you. Man, if we can't get past that, we're in trouble. We've got to have that as the foundation because there's a lot of tougher stuff we're going to face out there. And if we don't know God's, God loves us, we're, we're in real trouble. And so I'm here to say God's demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, here's something else that I want to point out before we move on to the next one, is that this uh, demonstration of God's love is in a present tense. And that means that while it's describing a past event, the demonstration never goes away. Do you understand what I mean by that? Demonstrate is in the present tense. God demonstrates his love. And Paul, when he's writing this, Romans is probably written at least 20, 20 years after the resurrection, maybe 25 to 30 years after the resurrection. And he's still saying this as if it's happening today. The demonstration is still happening 25 years later that Christ dying for us still demonstrates God's love. And it hasn't diminished over these 2,000 years. It still demonstrates today to us that God loves us. That's good news. This is the, the next thing, is that his love is undeserved. It's undeserved. Verse 9 says we were saved from God's wrath, and that wrath was deserved. Wrath uh, is uh, indignation and retribution directed at wrongdoing. It can be divine uh, punishment based on God's angry judgment against somebody. Sometimes this is translated condemnation. Condemnation isn't a feeling either. It's, it's objectively true. It's doom that awaits a believer. So when Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there's, no, there's therefore now no condemnation, it's saying you don't have doom awaiting you because sins have piled up in your account. Christ has taken care of that. So we're not under that condemnation anymore. It says, at the right time. Notice verse 1 here, or verse 6, excuse me. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. This is something like saying, when the right time came. And this refers to the time that God saw best for the saving action of the cross to take place. God did it at just the right time. I used to wonder, why didn't Jesus die um, earlier in history. And, you know, I, I don't know the exact reason for that, except that there needed, one, one reason is that there needed to be a preparation. Okay. And another reason is in his sovereignty, he was arranging things. If you know the time that Jesus died on the cross, and uh, the Roman Empire provided peace throughout a massive region. 
and roads on which the gospel could travel in a common language through Greek. All of these things came into place at just the right time. And and then I think about, man, all the people that didn't know the gospel. And here's an interesting thing. I don't know if you thought of this, but there are more people alive today than in all of the history of humanity prior to today. Do you understand what I mean by that? That if you look at uh, the statistics of world population growth, you find out that the world... um, I can't remember the exact statistics on this, but if you go back just a century, it's somewhere around 2 billion. And if you go back even further than that, it's even less than that. So uh, in terms of people being able to hear the gospel, it's not like we've always had this constant population throughout the history of time. Population has grown. And so the number of people that didn't hear the gospel in the early, they're still important to God. And, and God knows how to deal with that justly. Can we leave that in his hands? Okay. But think about this, that uh, the majority of people who've ever lived have lived after the cross. That's important to know. So it's not like God's shirking off all those people prior to that. It's that in in time, more population would grow and more people uh, who would be able to hear the gospel also would be there. So he knows what he's doing and all of that. That's, That's all I need to say about that. He knows what he's doing there. But his death, in terms of timing preceded our repentance, okay? And in so doing, it's a, it's a massive demonstration of his love for us. He died before we were even looking his way. I mean, the sinners who were standing around the cross and the people dividing his uh, clothing and the people that were mocking him, he said, to, he said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So his grace preceded our readiness to accept it or even look for it. That's massive grace. That's massive love that he saw us on our ugly state. You know, it's like, uh, you know, when you're, you're dating, you, you make yourself look as good as you can. But you know that that first morning after you're married and you wake up together, they're going to see the real you. Somebody's peeking in back there. <laughs> and what that, I'm referring to myself, of course. <laughs> but then you also know that a lot of the pretense co- comes down to, and they see you for who you really are. And God sees past all of that. He sees us for who we really are. And he saw us that way before, and he loved us anyway. If God's love is a constant He's always loved us the same amount. It's like his knowledge. Um, his knowledge doesn't grow because he knows it all. And if his love is perfect, his love doesn't have to grow. He loves perfectly. He loved us perfectly before we came to Christ, and he loves us perfectly after coming to know him. So at just the right time, uh, he demonstrates his love for us, and this tell us, tells us that it precedes uh, it precedes repentance. God's always the first uh, wooer or pursuer in the relationship. So sometimes when we're trying to reconcile with somebody, um, we don't want to be the first one. We want them to come to us and tell tell us they're sorry. And if we're sorry, of course, we'll wait for them and tell them. And uh, uh, that's that's a little safer, isn't it? 
Like if they come and approach, then it's a little safer. But um, God didn't wait. And, and of course, he had nothing to apologize for. And, and that's what makes this even more profound is that the one who's offended comes to restore the one who is the offender. And that's what he's done for us. Now, notice it says something interesting here. Uh, maybe you hadn't thought, thought about this, but verse 7 says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. And so here we're, we're talking about uh, the opposite, rarely for the righteous. The opposite, he's saying here, the opposite is not even true among the best. The opposite would be this, that Christ died for us when we were still sinners. Okay? And then Paul comes in, and by this marvelous switch in rhetoric, he says, think about this, how glorious this is. Usually people won't even die for a righteous person. Christ died for you when you're unrighteous. Usually people won't even die for a good person. Christ died for us when we were bad. That's what he's saying. And he, he uses two different words here uh, in this undeserved. Uh, he uses righteous. He says uh, in verse 7 there, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. So let's just draw a circle here, and here's righteous. Okay. And then uh, he says uh, in the second part, though for a good person... Someone might possibly dare to die. So we have righteous and we have good. Okay, here's two words that uh, refer in this section here. Anybody remember what these kind of charts are called? I can't think of it. There you go, Venn diagram. There's a little bit of overlap right there in this area. Okay, um, there's a little bit of overlap between these two words, but they, they mean slightly different things. And I think it'd be good to point these out. Uh, a righteous person is one with a high standard of rectitude. They're upright. They're just. They're fair. Probably the nuance here is referring to a person who who does things by the book. Okay, Maybe legalistic righteousness would be a good uh, picture of this. They're straight arrow. They're by the book. Now, it, to see the distinction here, maybe you know somebody who's like this, but they're not very nice. They're not very giving. They can be really mean, right? So the righteous person that's being referred to here might be upright in all that they do. They're not going to break the rules. They're not going to do anything that's wrong. But a good person, on the other hand, is a person with a high standard of worth and merit. In other words, this is not just they're not doing anything wrong, which would be more the negative side of things. Not negative as in bad, but negative as in it's about what they're not going to do. Uh, the good person is one who does stuff for other people. Okay, so uh, this could pertain to being generous um, in terms of relationships, being good to other people. Okay, so maybe their righteousness is not exactly um, what the other person is, but they're good, they're kind, they're generous. Okay, so uh, if you were just taking an average everyday person, which one do you think most people would be more likely to substitute their life for? The good person. They want somebody who they know has been kind to them. They would do something. But Paul says, neither for the righteous nor the good will anyone, except for in very rare circumstance, die for them. Do you see what he's saying here? That's the, the case that he's trying to make. So people usually won't die for one who's righteous or good. Um, 
the UBS Bible Handbook says, the distinction between a righteous person and a good person is that a righteous person is one who will, without bending, follow exactly what the law demands. While a good person is one who is not so much bound by legalistic requirements, but who is willing to show mercy and kindness beyond what the law demands for him or her. And so there's an area where these overlap, but the distinction shows that there are some who go beyond the law and do good and others who do not. But it says here in verse 7, rarely and might possibly shows us that this is kind of an exceptional thing. People don't want to die for someone else, even if they're good. But this shows us God's love because he died for us when we weren't good and we weren't righteous. And he mentions a few things. In fact, the words that characterize us prior to the cross are words like powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. And so just thinking about those and looking at those, powerless here means something like morally weak, helpless in a moral sense, helpless in view of circumstances, uh, wanting in moral strength, courage, or will. The New Living Translation uh, describes this, and this is in verse uh, 6. You see, uh, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We were powerless. That's the first description of us prior to the cross. We were powerless. We were morally weak. NLT, utterly helpless. Phillips' translation says, powerless to help ourselves. New Revised Standard, still weak. We were still weak. We had no power to save ourselves. Are you with me? We're morally, we were morally corrupt and morally weak. We couldn't have done it. But God in his goodness uh, sent Christ to die for us. And then he uses the word ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. This is the second description of what we were like in our undeserved state for God's love, is that we were ungodly. This is uh, referring, ungodly doesn't mean just sinful. Ungodly uh, is an impious person who violates proper relationship with God. So this is the person who uses God's name in vain, who has no room for God, is very irreverent, uh, in, irreverent either in the sense of belligerent towards God or dismissive. Okay, you know, dismissive is just like, well, God, what has God ever done for me or something like that? But it's, irre- it's irreverent. And so uh, one who lives without regard to religious belief or practice, an irreverent person. And it doesn't mean that a person, um, this has to be a person without religious beliefs or practices. You can have a person who practices, but in their life they're really um, irreverent. They, they still, they don't give God the proper place that they should, and maybe they, they act like he doesn't matter in the day-to-day. That's ungodliness. You know, there are people who call themselves Christians that are ungodly. They, they come to church, and then throughout the week, they're dismissive of God. They've got no room for him, no place for him. They just go about their business. And that's what ungodly is talking about here, is a kind of willful or um, accidental irreverence. Um, and so it says that Christ died for people like that. Can you believe that? that we, and we were like that. Before coming to Christ, how many thoughts did we have of Jesus? How many thoughts did we have of God? Were we thinking about him? Did we care about him? Did we live our lives as if we owned it ourselves? That's the way that most people live. The third description is of sinners. Notice uh, verse 8 here. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's already described us as powerless, morally powerless, ungodly, and now sinners. This is all reasons why his love was undeserved. Sinners here means not measuring up because we stand as outsiders to him, pertaining to sinful behavior. It's a person who's disobeyed any divine command or neglected any duty, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And in all translations, this is sinners. We don't have any variety in this. So all the translations testify, this is the word. This is the word we need to use, sinners here. Uh, People who violated some area of loyalty to God. Uh, And usually there's, there's one instance that breaks the relationship, and then there's a series that follows. So Adam and Eve... They sin by not believing God. They ate the fruit. And then within the next generation, murder has taken place. So uh, we're never just guilty of one sin, right? There's a sinful attitude and heart that comes along with that. So he says uh, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to become righteous to show his love, but he extended his love before that. And then the last description doesn't need uh, a lot of explanation but we were enemies of God, and we set ourselves as rebels and enemies of God when we sinned against him. It's like uh, when Adam and Eve said that we want to eat the fruit so we can know like God knows. We're going to have life on our terms, okay? And so it sets us as enemies of God. When we love the world, we're enemies of God. Um, when we live in rebellion against him, we make ourselves enemies of God. And not only enemies of God, but enemy, enemies of the good, and while we were enemies, Christ died for us. What is the justification for the gospel saying that we're to love our enemies? Well, God did it first. God did it first, and so he expects us to do that. And the conventional wisdom is love your friends and hate your enemies. But God didn't do that. He loved us when we were far away. And what does that say about people who are outside of the body of Christ now? They're not our enemy in the sense of uh, we should hate them and fight against them. Are you with me? Even people who have different moral stands than us, people who endorse evil, they're not our enemies. They may be the enemies of God, but we're to love them. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle against principalities and powers. There's a spiritual fight that's on. But God loves people. A lot of times, because uh, this love is undeserved, Uh, we can be resentful against it. This is the second quote from C.S. Lewis. It's from The Four Loves. And he says something that might sound surprising at first. He says, there is in the heart of every man that which resists and resents agape from his creator. We naturally want to be desired, to be found delightful, to satisfy worthily some hunger in others. To receive a love which is purely a gift which bears witness solely to the loveliness of the giver and not uh, at all to our loveliness is a severe mortification. We desperately need to receive such love, but we don't naturally want to. Now, you might have heard me say that we don't want God's love, and that's not what I, I said. What I said is that we want to be loved because we're lovely. To be loved, even though we're wretched, can be an insult in a way sometimes. It's not but we can take it that way because we want to be loved because we're 
We're lovable. We're good. We've got something redeemable in us or redeeming in us. And God says, you got none of that. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, and he loves us anyway. And we have to get over ourselves in order even to accept that love. We have to come to terms with the fact that we uh, stand in a position towards God as utter beggars. We can clean ourselves up on the outside, but on the inside we can be filthy. And God wants to extend his love to us, but we have to come to him as, as those with nothing to offer except ourselves. Do you understand what I mean by that? I think it was Martin Luther who said it takes faith even to believe that we're the sinners that God calls us to be, uh, calls us that we are, not to be. He's called us sinners. But sometimes it takes faith even to believe that we're that bad, you know? So uh, C.S. Lewis might be right. This might be why so many people have trouble with grace because we want to be loved because we're lovely, not because the one doing the loving is so good. But he is. Um, his love is sacrificial. Just a couple words on this. I think we've talked about this recently. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. Notice uh, verse 6. While we were still sinners, we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul says, in case you missed it, in verse 8, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. For us. Christ died for us. Is like That's the heart of the sacrifice of what Christ has done. Sacrifice is exchange of one thing for another. It's not simply giving away. It's giving in place of. And that's what he does. He gives himself in place of us. When the, um, the Old Testament believers were sacrificing their animals, there was a sense in which the animal was taking their place. Right? That I don't have to die today, but this animal is dying as a symbolic representation of myself dying. And, and future... It's the, it's representing the future sacrifice that will stand in my place. A sacrifice which, if you look through this passage, you find pardon sin. It demonstrates love. It saves from wrath, and it reconciles to relationship. And finally here, his love is redeeming. His love is redeeming. Notice some things it says about us. We'll just read through this here. Uh, Verse 9. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not uh, Not only is this so, but we also... Uh, boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've been recon- uh, we've received reconciliation. What are all of the negatives that have been said about us? Powerless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. And now we have three things that are said about us that are really important. First of all, in verse 9, we've been justified. Notice it says there, since we've now been justified by his blood. This is the result of his redeeming love, his his selfless love. The love that's been displayed on the cross is that we are justified. Um, justified means to be acquitted or to be pronounced and treated as righteous and thereby to become right. Loanitis definition to cause someone to be in proper or right relation with someone else. 
uh, NLT uses here, you've been made right. Weymouth's translation pronounced free from guilt. New English translation declared righteous. And Good News Bible put right. You've been put right with God. Okay, so we've been justified because of his love. That means that even though we're guilty of sin, he's taken the price of sin upon himself, and he set us right with himself through it. And that's beautiful. I'm not going to labor that because that's what Sunday was about. Uh, but two, uh, the second thing is that we're reconciled. We're, this is redeeming love because not only does, does it justify us, and it, even though we were sinners, we've been set right with God. The second thing it does for us is it reconciles us to him. So this is talking about a restored relationship. And this is the most beautiful definition I've heard of reconciliation. And if you do write in the margin of your Bible, or if you have a way to take notes on your Bible app, this would be a great place to do that. Reconciled in verse 10 means the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. Exchanging hostility for a friendly relationship. Verse 10 says, um, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Being reconciled with God is a central theme of the gospel. It's to be brought back into right relationship, exchanging hostility for friendship. NLT says here, friendship restored, having your friendship restored. And there's other places that talk about this. 2 Corinthians 5 is probably the one we know best. All this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2.16 talks about how God has brought down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. It says he reconciled Jew and Gentile to him, uh, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So he takes uh, the Jewish element, he takes the Gentile element, and he reconciles both to God and creates out of the two one new man. Okay, I, I don't know if we've plunged the depths of that, that we're not Jew and Gentile anymore. We're part of the new humanity. Have you thought about that? That far exceeds the Jew and Gentile distinctions of of prior years. This is something different God's doing. He's made out of the two one new humanity. Colossians 1, uh, 20 through 23, and through him uh, to reconcile, through Christ to reconcile all things, whether things in heaven or in on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Since you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by God's physical body, by Christ's physical body, through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope of the gospel. So he says in his redeeming love, we're justified, we're reconciled. Reconciled means that you can call upon God as Father and that God is your friend. My dad didn't like that. He thought, we we used to sing this song, and uh, my brother sang it at his church, and my my dad would complain about it. He thought it was so irreverent. Uh, I am a friend of God. Remember that song? I'm a friend of God. He thought, quit acting like you're on the same level. I think that was his thinking. 
But he doesn't, maybe he didn't remember from his Bible reading, he should have, but uh, Abraham was called the friend of God. And we can be God's friend because we've been reconciled through him. It's not the same thing as saying God is our equal. That's irreverent. God is our friend, but he's not our equal. But to have friendship, that means, first of all, that God has to condescend himself to a lower level and talk to us. You know, like when you talk to little kids and you get down on their level, and sometimes with the babies, you talk baby talk to them. And uh, it probably looks foolish to everyone else, and you might even feel foolish doing it. You've condescended yourself to a lower level of understanding. And God condescends himself without losing himself to our level so that we can know him. Final thing here is that his redeeming love saves us, saves us. The uh, definition of this word is to attain to salvation, to cause someone to experience divine salvation, to, to be saved, to become delivered or rescued from sin and its judgment. That's what salvation means. His redeeming love didn't leave us in our sinful state, but it offers to us the hope that we can be freed from our past sin and the judgment that's coming and live with him eternally. And uh, so the cross is not um, God's anger alone. It is his anger poured out on Christ in our place. It's his love towards us. And that's what scripture tells us. And so I hope if you ever face a a Blue Tuesday or a, a Mully Grub Monday, and you're thinking, I don't know if God loves me, you'll think about these verses. And remember, the cross is God's love extended. Let me quote a song, and we're done. It says, here is love. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Loving kindness is a flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the Mount of Crucifixion, Fountains open deep and wide through the floodgate of God's mercy. Float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss the guilty world in love. Amen. Let's stand and have a word of prayer tonight. Thank the Lord for his love for us. Lord, we thank you that you've given us uh, your word to remind us of these truths. But we thank you also You've given us your love and objective historical fact, something outside of ourselves that's not, that's untouched by our emotions, that can't be moved by the, the sways of uh, our emotional ups and downs, something that uh, the enemy shouldn't be able to uh, manipulate. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to base our lives on this mighty love displayed through the cross of Christ, and that it would change who we are and how we love. In return, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Jane. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.